0: Hi there. Welcome to the Health Analytic Insights Podcast. This podcast is all about creating a community of like-minded individuals who are passionate about the field of health informatics. I hope to share information and advice in topics such as health analytics, digital health, biomedical engineering, and data visualization in healthcare. And in exchange, I would love to hear from you, dear listener, about your experience and interest in this field. You can drop me a line at healthanalyticinsights at gmail.com, and this email, along with any references discussed during this podcast, will be listed in the show notes below. If this resonates with you, don't forget to follow and subscribe to this podcast, as I'll be releasing new episodes bi-weekly. So welcome everyone to the Health Analytic Insights podcast. I'm so excited to be interviewing Dr. David Stewart who trained in medical oncology in the Department of Developmental Therapeutics at M.D. Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas from 1976 to 1978. He then moved to Ottawa, Ontario, Canada from 1980 to 2003, and then moved back to M.D. Anderson in 2003, but returned again to University of Ottawa in 2011 as professor of medicine and head of the Division of Medical Oncology. Since completing his term as division head in 2019, he has continued to teach and practice oncology in Ottawa. In April 2022, he published a book intended for patients entitled A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks, available through Amazon Books or on his website, www.whycancerstillsucks.com. Great title, by the way. And this book covers several topics, including why cancer is so common, how cancer causes symptoms, different therapies, the future of cancer care, etc. The book also discusses system issues, why it takes too long to develop new drugs, why therapies cost so much, and changes needed to permit much faster, cheaper access to effective new drugs. It also compares the American and Canadian healthcare systems. So I'll be leaving links to the book in the show notes of the podcast episode below, and Dr. Stewart, I'm so excited to talk to you about your book and dive into the content. So let's get into the first question, which is, can you provide the audience with your background and what prompted you to write a short primer on why cancer still sucks? So
1: I've been in medical oncology for a long time now, and, and what patients always greatly appreciated any, any bit of information I could give them. And what, what patients also always told me was that the worst thing of all was uncertainty, they would rather have bad news than no news. Uncertainty is very difficult to deal with. If you've got bad news, then at least uh, you, then you can rapidly come to grips with it and figure out what you got to do. And so it was to provide that just information in a way that, that people could understand it. And I tried to make sure that people could understand it by the fact that two of the people that proofread the book, were my wife who's an interior decorator and my stepdaughter, who's an elementary school teacher, and anytime that got into too technical, they would let me know, and so I'd have to change the wording to make it to try and make sure that people could understand. Also, for for healthcare trainees, so at, there's a each chapter is a short primer set, a chapter that's in a way that to people with no medical knowledge can understand. And then there's a further detailed section that was still written in a way that I hope that many non-medical people could understand it, but also gives a lot of background information that would be useful to healthcare providers that are not in the oncology field. And then the other big problem is systems issues, that, that why does it take far too long to develop new anti cancer drugs? Why does the Canadian healthcare system have the, the problems that, that it does? And for many years, I've been publishing papers on these systems issues, and it's as if nobody listens at all. And uh, so this the book was just another way to try to get it out to there to people that would be concerned about this, because the, the systems issues are difficult, but we can solve them. All we have to do is prioritize these things and make sure that we solve them. If we do that, we can solve them. But right now, they're not being prioritized.
0: Thank you for that, Dr. Stewart. And to your book, it's, I really like how it's divided up into like a short, clarified understanding, and then it goes into further detail. So if people want to just have the high-level concepts, and then they want to get more details as well. So it's quite easily digestible for, for a wide audience, for sure. Um, and as I said in the bio, you have a unique perspective as you worked in both the American and the Canadian healthcare system. Can you talk about the strengths and weaknesses of both systems when it comes to cancer prevention, diagnosis and treatment?
1: Well, as I say in chapter 14 of the book, as where I say which is better, the, health, the American system or the Canadian system? As I point out, I, I love them both and I hate them both. They both have major issues, major strengths, but also major problems. And so when Americans would say would tell me that they wanted a Canadian-type system, I'd say, no, you don't want that. The Canadian system is not the right one. And when Canadians tell me they want an American-type system, I'd say, no, you don't want that. That is definitely not the right system because they both have major issues. The problems with the American one is that it's by far the most expensive healthcare system in the world, but it's very inefficient in many ways. So the costs of healthcare administration are much higher so, it costs five times as much in the US system for administration as it does in the Canadian system. And that's because all the healthcare that's delivered through insurance companies. And each insurance company has their own set of forms that have to be filled out. And for a physician to do anything down the states, they need prior authorization. So, they have to call the insurance company first to get prior authorization. And this is very expensive. So when we moved down there in 2003, my wife was absolutely astounded at the number of people that worked in the average doctor's office there. But most of them were dealing with the insurance companies, whereas in the average Canadian doctor's office, there might be five or 10 physicians working there, but they'll just have one receptionist and maybe one nurse. And that's it because it's much, much more efficient. From an administrative perspective. So it's one of the few examples of, of the a government-run system being more efficient than a, a private-run system, but uh, it is much more efficient. But the problem is that the Canadian system, they they instead control costs by creating bottlenecks. They they create choke points to slow things down and so that not enough CAT scanners. So if you look at the Organization of Economic Cooperation or Development or the OECD, Canada ranks near the bottom of the 38 countries with respect to number of CAT scanners per million population, so that we're below Turkey and Eastern Europe and most and many other countries. Same with MRI scanners, same with hospital beds, same with healthcare specialists. So people in Canada keep on saying how bad it is the shortage of, of the primary care physicians. That's not a big problem. We've got a major problem with specialists. So with the primary care physicians... Uh, we're between the top third and the middle third with respect to the number of primary care physicians per, per million population. For specialists, we're right down near the bottom. And that, of course, makes a job much harder for primary care physicians so that they cannot be nearly as effective in doing their jobs because it takes them too long to get tests done for patient people and gets them too it takes too long, too much effort to get to specialists. And they don't have enough specialist backup. So that's a, a major problem in the Canadian system. Now, in the U.S. system, the the major problem is that, as well, is that the people that without insurance or with who are underinsured do not have good access, and that is typically young people. By the time you reach 65 in the United States, you get Medicare, and U.S. Medicare is gold-plated. It's very, very, very good. But for people under the age of 65, if you've got good insurance, it's good. But if you do not then it's a major problem. And that's why the average life expectancy in the United States is ranked 49th in the world in average life expectancy, just ahead of Albania. Canada currently ranks 16th. We did rank seventh at one point, but we've kept being constantly slipping as our healthcare system deteriorates, as it will, as it has been doing, and as it looks like it's continue, going to continue to do unless people really start paying attention. But the, the, the big problem in the United States is the number of young people who die, things that could have been prevented. And so this is a huge problem in, in the United States So that they've got one of the highest maternal death rates in the Western world, one of the highest infant death rates in the Western world, because young people cannot get access. If they make it to age 65, then they're in much better shape. But young people don't get good access and also poor, poor, poor people don't. But richer people under the age of 65 will have insurance. Poorer people do not. So this is a, a huge problem. But all this is why the average life expectancy in Canada for males is 4.5 years longer than the average male in the United States. For females, three years longer than the average female in the United States. Is because of the problems with young people, and also there are other things that lead to excess death rates in the United States, including the fact that they have a much higher homicide rate than Canada does, a much higher traffic traffic death rate, traffic accident death rate, much higher death rate from from drug overdoses. And also, if you go to a prison, uh, that takes about five years uh, off your uh, your life expectancy. And the imprisonment rate in the uh, United States is six times higher than it is in Canada. So those are all problems. And, and uh, so, if you're a young person, you're much better off with the Canadian healthcare system. If you're an older person, you're actually much better off with the American healthcare system because it takes too long to uh, to make things happen for older people in. Uh, so many Americans will tell you that from the time that there was first a suspicion of cancer, it's just days until they have their biopsy and their scans and they get started on treatment. In Canada, it takes much longer than that. It may only take weeks, but with every week that passes, that increases the probability of dying from that cancer by 1% or 2%, depending on the kind of cancer, if it's localized. If you've got metastatic non-sposal lung cancer, for every week that goes by that you do not get started on treatment... of remaining patients die in that week, in every week that goes past. And and so it does not take a huge amount of time in Canada, but it does take weeks longer than the United States, and that translates into worse outcomes. So that, for example, the the five-year relative survival rate from cancers in the United States, about 67% of patients will will survive five years or effectively be cured. In Canada, it's 63%. That 4% difference does not sound like very much, but that translates into about 8,000 to 9,000 excess deaths from cancer in Canada mm-hmm. every year. So eight or 9,000 people that Canadians who would have survived cancer if they had the same rapid access to treatment and diagnosis and treatment as do in the United States. On the other hand, an American may go bankrupt from their cancer care. Canadians will not usually go bankrupt. So there are pros and cons, but but in Canada, we need much, much faster access than, than we currently have. And to put in perspective, as I said, back in the 1980s, Canada ranked about sixth or seventh in average life expectancy. We've now dropped down to 16th. By 2040, we will have dropped down to 27th in average life expectancy because our self-care system is slipping rapidly. There's there's just far too many things that have been cut back, it, and this is being a major problem.
0: Oh, thanks for that really, really great overview. You know, some of the unique challenges that both the Canadian and the American healthcare system face, age related, social terms of health related. That was really in- interesting. And what you talked about kind of segues nicely into the next question in terms of waiting for treatment, how that can result in worse outcomes. And in the book, you talk about clinical research has increasingly become more stringent and expensive. And with all this regulatory bureaucracy, there might be a tendency to lose sight. Of the lives on the line how important is the role of patient advocacy groups when it comes to advancing these research and clinical trials
1: so it can be incredibly important and the reason we know it can be incredibly important is what happened with aids with aids patients got mad and they insisted that things move faster and it did move faster. That has not happened in cancer. So in cancer, we tend to have different groups. So the lung cancer group will fight for lung cancer patients. the Prostate cancer patients will fight for prostate cancer patients. The breast cancer patients will fight for breast cancer. But this is a global issue. This is not us versus them. This is all of us together. And so, so far in cancer, it's been highly ineffective. and And so that all the things that slow down research they're there for a very good reason. I use the analogy of a highway. And you have all sorts of, of car accidents, fatal car accidents on a highway. Lots of people die. And so, so speed bumps are put in place. You put enough speed bumps in place, you bring the, the speed limit down to five miles an hour, and you massively slash the deaths from traffic accidents. But then nobody can get anywhere. And it also greatly increases your cost. It takes it costs you far more to go from one place to another. And that's what happens. So that on the research highway, there's a thousand speed bumps. Each of them there for a very good reason, but when they were put in place, there was no attention paid to the impact they would have on speed of access to to new drugs. So it t- takes an average of twelve years to take a new drug, new cancer drug, from discovery to to being approved for, for patients. I don't have any problem at all with those speed bumps if it's for treatment of acne or hemorrhoids or something like that. But if it's for treatment of a lethal disease, then it's far more important. So we published a paper just for the average drug that will increase life expectancy in patients with metastatic cancers. For every year of delay in getting that drug to market, that's 80,000 life years worldwide. So 80,000 life years lost. That's one person being alive one year, one life year. That's a huge number of life years lost. And because it t- takes 12 years from time of the from the, the, the drugs discovered until approved, that's an average of 1 million life years lost between the drug discovery and drug approval. So this is a huge, a huge negative impact. So, so that we need prioritization to make sure that, that everything moves faster. The other thing, because it, it costs a lot more, that has a direct impact on the very high cost of the new anti-cancer drugs. So people, it's been pointed out that in the 1960s, it cost an average of $4 million to bring a drug from discovery to marketing. By 2013, that had risen to $2.9 billion. And <sighs> it's, it keeps on rising very, very, very rapidly. And those, those costs then have to be recouped once a drug is marketed. And so that, the only way to do that is to charge a lot for the drug. And, and so so this has a major impact on on healthcare costs it's far too expensive so the the analogy i use is that it has to be like the autobahn in germany have you ever driven on the autobahn in germany yeah so the autobahn in germany it has is famous for having long stretches with no speed limits mm-hmm. so when my wife and i moved, went over for a vacation in germany rented an audi we'd be driving along the autobahn going 100 miles an hour and all these cars would be whizzing us going 140 miles an hour and yet we felt fit, perfectly safe doing it because they've got smart regulation they've got good roads good cars good drivers and smart regulation, like it's illegal to pass in the right, and you cannot be in the left lane unless you're passing. So smart regulation like that is said, they've got one of the lowest traffic fatality rates in Europe, despite these unlimited speed limits. You need smart regulation. So that's what we need with clinical research in, in lethal diseases. We need smart regulation, and we do not have that. And all we need to do to do it is to prioritize it. And we know that because what happened in AIDS, but also what happened with COVID. Before COVID, the fastest vaccine ever developed was about four years for the mumps vaccine. Most vaccines took eight or 12 years, eight to 12 years to develop. But with COVID, it was prioritized to get rapid vaccines, and it was safely and easily done. So we just need to do the same for lethal diseases. We need to prioritize rapid drug development. And to do this, it would have to be exactly the same as COVID and AIDS. It would have to be an international thing. This is not something that one country could do alone. And the reason one country cannot do it alone is because... Uh, 20, 25 years ago, there was a harmonization of clinical research across countries so that if we did a clinical trial in Canada and came up with a bunch of good information, that information could also be used in the United States and Europe to get the drug approved there. And the same with information that's generated in Europe where we can use it here. That was through harmonization. But in the process of harmonization, they meant that everything slowed down to the same marked extent, and also the cost went way up because it was the cost of documentation. And that's the most important part of clinical research is the cost of documentation. And so those costs went way up. And so we have to tackle this internationally as well. And and we can do it because we did it for COVID and for AIDS, but we have to do it for cancer and for other lethal diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Lou Gehrig disease and things like that. We've got to do it for all of them. And so when I first submitted the paper for publication, and the number of life years lost per year of delay in getting drugs approved. It's that paper we sent it to nine different journals before we found one that accepted it. The other ones that turned it down. And the reviewers would say things, well, these life years of life are lost are so huge, I can't I can't possibly be right. Except they had exactly the same access to exactly the same data I had to do the calculations. So it was very real. Or they said, but but we can't fix this anyway. So it doesn't make any difference if we if we know that all these lives are lost, the system cannot be fixed. But yes, the system can be be fixed. uh, We just have to decide to fix it. Or other reviewers said, yeah, but the drugs cost so much anyway. It doesn't make any difference to the market because nobody will be able to afford them. So it doesn't make any difference. But this makes a huge, so that we need to do this. We need to pay attention. We need to uh, get people on board. And that was one of the reasons for writing the book, so that everybody in the public could see that this is where the problem is. And they could join forces together to fix this, just like they did with AIDS and COVID.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say that I think people might not understand like the behind the scenes of all the clinical research, all the different regulations that have to go through. So having access to this book can give people that knowledge and then they can start to advocate towards improving this. I think it's really important for people to have that knowledge first and then they can actually advocate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and the, the other important thing. Each of those speed bumps was there for a very good reason. So it's not get rid of all the regulations and all the speed bumps. Mm-hmm. The regulation is absolutely essential. But just like on the Audubon in Germany, we need the regulation to be much, much, much smarter than it is.
0: Exactly, exactly. And here at the podcast, we love talking about analytics, how we can help a clinicians to improve patient outcomes. And I was reading a really interesting footnote in, in your book about how Cancer Care Ontario kept close track of, of wait times and basically published statistics each month on a public website for transparency. And perhaps as a direct result or one of the outcomes of this tracking, the wait time to see a medical oncologist is shorter than for almost any other non-emergency specialty, at an average about two weeks. Can you talk about the challenges and successes of implementing benchmarks and tracking analytics and its effect on clinical practice?
1: Yeah, so that that was one analytic that was incredibly helpful because we knew where we were compared to the rest of the province. And, and no excuses. We had to figure out how to how to fix it. If, if we were longer than anybody else, that this was not somebody else's fault. We had to fix it. So many of my colleagues said, "Well, it's not fair. We, as oncologists, that we've given this benchmark to meet, and and the orthopedic surgeons don't have to do it, or the or the rheumatologists don't have to do it." And I said, "Ah." You, know, you do not realize how lucky you are that somebody's paying attention. Somebody thinks this is important. And so that that's incredibly important. So it's an example of a benchmark that was very important. And also the radiation oncologists have the same benchmark. So medical and radiation oncologists have shorter wait times than, than almost any other specialist, despite there being fewer medical oncologists than many other specialists. So far fewer medical oncologists and cardiologists or infectious disease specialists or, or gastroenterologists or neurologists or things like that. There are far fewer of us. But because of this, and we were organized to really make it things happen fast. So that's an example of a benchmark that really helps. The problem is that there are also lots of benchmarks that don't really help. So, for example, they also had the benchmark that once you saw the oncologist, that you, that you had to have a certain proportion of patients on treatment by four weeks after. And that's fine and dandy. So that helped them make sure they had enough chemotherapy nurses, enough radiation machines, and enough radiation therapists. But they had no control over the scans and labs. and so that we had no control over how fast we get a pathology report or how fast we could get a scan done. And so you need to have control over the whole system if you're going to make this work. And it is very, very, very important so to to make it all work. So that they they made sure that the, that their surgeons that they they were, they had a benchmark, and that was very, very important, but only if they've got access to the ORs and only if there's enough anesthetists and things like that. So those were, these, those were things. That, so the helpful one are, are wait times. The unhelpful one, the wait time to get people on treatment where we had no control over the things that were delaying treatment. And there are other ones that, uh, that are problematic benchmarks. So, so just having a benchmark is not automatically good. So, for example, there's one benchmark that if patient's dying within two weeks of starting on treatment, the implication is you should not have started that patient on treatment if they're going to die in, within two weeks. And so they can publish your numbers and say that you're higher than the others. But what they don't capture is the number of people who would have died if we hadn't treated them, but instead are alive a year later and are mm-hmm. doing well a year later. They don't capture the other side of that. And so that's a very highly flawed metric that is not helpful. Also, I use the, the example of the, when I was head of medical oncology at the old Ottawa Civic Hospital many years ago, that we got all our, our, our metrics for our inpatients, including your your length of stay in on the inpatient unit. And so we were, we were told that we were did very well on our lengthless day stay and all our other metrics. There was only one metric that we did badly on, and that was the length of stay of patients dying in hospital. They were t- staying too long. And so the implication of that is we, we should be doing something to make our patients die faster. And mm-hmm. so, so this is a problem of a highly flawed metric. So again, the metrics are important, but you have to make sure that they actually reflect what you want them to reflect.
0: Yeah, I guess it has to be like that back and forth conversation with a clinician. What can they actually directly impact and influence with their practice versus what, you know, is out of their control and, you know, things are rapidly changing. So one metric that might be effective five years ago might not be effective today. So I guess it's just that back and forth and constantly adjusting to make sure you're actually measuring something that is of value.
1: Yeah, but overall, these things are helpful. So I point out in the book as well that in Canada, I've been part of many exercises where a whole bunch of different specialties would get around the table to try to solve a problem. And we did that with lung cancer, how long it took to get a, a patient from as, uh, onset of symptoms of lung cancer onto treatment. I was not involved in most of the meetings, but many of my colleagues were, spent a year just sitting around the table once a week, going through all the different blocks and how to bypass them, how to make it happen faster. And I point out when I was working at MD Anderson Hospital down in Houston, on the other hand, if you had a major problem, then the hospital would hire another assistant VP who would hire another entire department, would then come up with a whole bunch more policies and procedures that the clinicians would then have to adhere to. So mm-hmm. it was often not very helpful. It was got in the way rather than, rather than making things work faster. So, so it is important to keep your eye on the potential metrics and to try to do things differently, to, make, to do them better.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and, and so this has been a really valuable interview. And before we wrap up, so the audience for this book is aimed at the public and at non-oncologists, healthcare providers, and trainees. What takeaways do you want readers to learn from this book um, once they finish reading it? So that uh,
1: cancer is very, very, very common. So 49% of all males and 45% of all females in Canada will develop it at some point. But the, by far the major, uh, the most important uh, risk factor is just getting one day older. Every day older, you get uh, that increases your risk. But there's also a bunch of other things. that So anything that increases the number of mutations in your body will do it. So that's why you shouldn't smoke. That's why you should limit the amount of alcohol you drink, the amount of processed meats that you eat, the amount of sun exposure, that, so that, all those things. Also, that the number of cell divisions in the body, that the, every cell division increases. So to reduce the number of cell divisions, you eat less, and you try not to be overweight. And also being overweight this is inflammation. That increases your risk. So a bunch of things like that that can improve risk. But the message is that there are many, many different aspects of cancer. I try to cover a a range of them in the book, but also systems issues that the public can do things about the systems issues. So we have to do some, something about the fact that in Canada, we have far too few CAT scanners, far too few, uh, few MRI scanners, far too few medical specialists. And that also there are marked impediments to access to drugs in Canada that other countries do not face. So that other countries in Europe, et cetera, their number one priority of an infecting new drug, how do they get to that to, to that to their patients? And then how do they lower costs? In Canada, we've got a huge problem because the number one priority is how do we lower costs? And then maybe we can get access. So if you look at access to new cancer drugs in Canada compared to other countries like European countries, many European countries, Canada takes about one year longer to access effective new drugs through public funding to the average OECD country. So this is much too long because there are far too many people that suffer and die during that time period that could have had their symptoms alleviated by that effective new drug or could have lived longer if they just had access to that drug. And it's not all Canadians that have difficulty accessing to them. If you've got private drug insurance, you can access that drug as just as soon as, as Health Canada. But if you're relying on public funding, then it's going to take you another year and a half or more or longer before you get access to it. And who has a private insurance? Well, some people working for large companies do. Most public servants do. So exactly the same people that are limiting the access of, of most Canadians to those drugs, they themselves have access. This is a conflict of interest this should not be happening. So I, I very much want them to keep their access, but I want all Canadians to have that same rapid access that the public servants have, and not just the public servants. So this is something that's very wrong in our in our system.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Stewart, for your insights. This has been very valuable. I hope everyone can read the book. Again, the links will be in the show notes for people to check out. And thank you again.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much for having me. Very much appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Health Analytic Insights podcast. I'd love to hear from you about topics I should cover in future episodes. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. Have a wonderful day.